Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, C4. Really glad that you made it out this morning in this blustery winter weather. And good morning again to our online community, wherever you might be today. Well, we're still in our series, Back to Basics, and we're going to be in Romans 12. So if you want to navigate there right now or open your Bible there, that would be great, and we'll get into this today. Our journey today does not begin, though, uh, with Romans 12. It doesn't begin in this room. Uh, Our journey today begins in my master bedroom. What I'm about to tell you is a true story. It is G-rated for all audiences. It is 8 a.m. It is a true story. My wife is on the move. My two girls have had a good night's sleep. They are alive. They are active. The house is awake. Almost. Despite the sound of the television, the dancing all around me, I refuse to move. I, within my dreams, make the choice that I will continue to sleep deeply, no matter the chaos of women around me. I don't do very well in the morning. Some of you who come a little before nine say, good morning, John, how are you? And I say, I'm waking up. And you go, ha, ha, I'm not joking. I don't do well in the morning. I want you to picture it, a dark room. I'm in my cocoon. I love the weight of blankets. My feet are tucked under. Life is perfect. You hardly know blanket one foot out of the sheets, people. You're sick. You don't know what you're missing. My wife is one of you. Cocoon people, who's with me? You know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Thank you. Anyway, I'm sitting in bed. I'm sleeping in bed. My hair, well, what's left of it is, well, you know, like it is every morning to the side. I'm sleeping deeply. Suddenly in my dreams, I hear Hannah cry out, Daddy, Daddy, Mom told me to give this to you. Now, I know she's actually in the room, though I'm still sleeping. I mumble something, and I'm sure in my head it was English. When I said it out loud, I'm sure it's not English. My eyes open just for a moment. Hazily, I see my daughter, Hannah. Again, she says, Daddy, Daddy, Mom told me to give this to you. So for just a moment, I come out of my cocoon with no intention of waking up at all and hold out my hands towards my daughter. To my surprise, she actually does give me something. She smiles like all three-year-olds do. She danced and she ran away. A toothbrush. It feels like a toothbrush, I say. Why would she give me a toothbrush? Well, like all guys I know, I just went back to sleep with a toothbrush on my chest. (laughs) Deeply, thank you, deeply sleeping. What seemed like an eternity later, my wife came in and said, John... Wake up. There is a tone with wives (laughs) that is like an alarm clock that shatters all things. I said defensively, Joanna, I'm sleeping. She said, did you not look at what Hannah actually gave you? No. Why, I said, would I look at a toothbrush? And by the way, can you hear my tone right now? Why would you ask her to give me a toothbrush? John, she said, wake up. She's not yelling, but it's coming close now. What I said, what? She said, look at what's in your hand. She's now saying it with more forth. Now, I'm more dazed and confused than intrigued. But I stood up and I got my glasses to see what was in my hand this whole time. To my shock, what was in my hand was not a toothbrush at all. It was a pregnancy test. (laughs) Yes, she said with a smile. The tone and smiling all at once. Number three is coming. Wake up. Well, at that moment, 
I was awake. <laughs> Joy, panic. Joy, then I thought, I'm never going to sleep ever again. <laughs> Joy, bills. Joy. Then I realized only later that I was holding a pregnancy test in my hand. <laughs> and thought, I need to go wash my hands. <laughs> Thanks, Joanna. You see, what happened three months ago to ourselves actually relates deeply to us as a community today. What has already happened to us as Christians does and will matter and will change our life forever, just like this decision and now this culmination will change ours. See, if you are a Christian, then real life-giving, permanent life has been given and it will change you now and it will change you in the future. Uh, Paul in chapter 12 moves us to see what a normal Christian life looks like after God has given us new life and moved into our lives. It is like Paul coming to us as a community here and online and saying, wake up. Something has already taken place and you're sleeping and refusing to engage in it fully. Wake up because if you do, there is great joy. See, the difference between theology or in between theology, which is right understanding, and doxology where Dave ended off last week, which is right praise. There's something called orthopraxy, right living. All theology really, of course, is practical. The goal of the good news of Jesus is to transform a person's life. As one said, until an individual Christian owns and lives a theology, the gospel has not accomplished its purpose. And so this last part of Romans, from 12 all the way to 16, is about answering the question in view of everything that God has already done for us. Now, how shall we live? Never forget one preach. God's plan of salvation isn't merely an invitation to escape the eternal consequences of sin. It is a divine invasion of earth which will remove Satan in time from his seat of power and replace his worldly system with the righteousness of God. Paul says in verse 1 in chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Therefore, he says, I urge you, I counsel you with courage, with a hope grounded in the author of reality itself. Do not forget what has been done on your behalf already, what is being done in and through and around you. Don't forget God's very mercy. All of Romans 1 through 11 is a grand outline of his mercy towards us. Though you were dead, the scriptures say, disconnected, a God-hater by word and deed, God loved you anyway. As one wrote, God's mercy to a terribly fallen human race was through the provision of his son. Radically sinful humanity was radically lost. Lost, yes, but not forgotten and not abandoned. God came for you in Jesus. He did not show ethnic or religious favoritism. He took his own just wrath, the scripture says, and placed it on himself. He took our sin and broke the power of it on the cross. He justified you. He redeemed you. He bought you out of slavery, of sin and death and the demonic. It says he adopted you. He gave you his Holy Spirit. He called you. He elected you. He predestined you. He is already glorified 
unified you. He has given you his community, his body to be part of. He broke the power of religion, Romans says, that taught you it was up to you to make sure that God liked you enough. Eternal life, purpose in this life, forgiveness of sin, a new community, all undeserved and yet all given. If you're a Christian today, Romans has already taught us you're a child of light. You are not accused no matter what struggles you have and no matter what others say and no matter what the demonic try to say about you. You are clean. You are in good standing. God lives in you. You are part of the people of God. You have been given mercy. You have returned. You have been named. You are owned by God. Jesus is your shepherd and he will never let you go. Amen, anybody? That is when Paul says, so in view of all of that... Offer your bodies. Present yourself. Yield everything that you are. Body, mind, soul, job, money, family, reputation, dreams, your now, your past, your future. All that makes you you. And give yourself to the living God as a living sacrifice. Consecrate yourself. Commit yourself to the deliberate, ongoing process, a lifetime process called worship. The language to us is foreign, right? Living in the modern West, we think about faith or religion through the lens of a system of ideas or ethics. Yet within the Old Testament, much of the experience of worship was connected to actual sacrifice. And yet animal sacrifice has now been rendered obsolete by Jesus' once-for-all self offering. We no longer take the lives of other living things because he now has given his life for us and now we are called to give our life to him. We must do it again and again and again though. For unlike those animals, we can get off the altar so quickly and so easily. The yoke image that Jesus used in other places is the same here. If you choose as a Christian to remove yourself from the altar talked about here, then knowingly or not, you place yourself on another altar, which will never bring redemption, never bring hope, never bring life, but will bring idolatry, whose bitter fruit always is slavery, is always fear, and always death. He says, offer yourselves. This is our spiritual act of worship. Worship is not just what we do here on a Sunday morning or evening alone. Worship for us as Christians is everyday life. And this worship is both total and reasonable. It is expected for any person who names the name of Jesus. We worship God with all that we have. Spiritual has another meaning here. One pointed out that earlier in chapter 6, Paul stated that believers presented their bodies to sin is now illogical. Why would freed slaves go back to an old master that was a thug? Presenting our bodies now to a new master who's full of love. This is logical. This is reasonable. This is good sense. That is why some of the old translations, like the King James, actually translate this. This is not your spiritual act of worship, but this is reasonable service. And so because we know Jesus personally, and because we know what he has done for us already, we can intelligently and willingly worship. Don't miss this. Worship for the Christian in all forms is an informed choice. Again, it was another pastor from the third century that preached on how we do this. He says, how does the body become a sacrifice? Let no eye look on no evil thing. It's become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say nothing filthy. It's become an offering. Let your hand do nothing evil. It has become a whole burnt offering. 
But this is not even enough, for we also must do good works. The hand must give alms, the mouth must bless those who curse it, and the ears must find time to hear or listen to the scriptures. Sacrifice, he wrote, allows no unclean thing. It is the first fruits of all other Christian actions. Paul says in verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. Do not conform. Do not be molded any longer to what this world is about, what the New Testament calls this age, the fallen time in history, actually what is named the end times, which have begun and have been working themselves out ever since that first Christmas night when Jesus was born. The pattern here talked about is when sin has dominion and where the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers so they don't even have the ability to understand Jesus. He says, you used to be that. No longer. Now you're called to be transformed. It's the word transfigured. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from. It is a promise that we will be changed into the likeness of Jesus. It's what we see in nature, right? Tadpole to frog, caterpillar to butterfly. Notice the very idea presumes that this is a lifelong process. This takes place through the Holy Spirit, through the reading of Scripture, and through actively involving yourself in Christian community. Those three places is where we become more and more like our Savior. Without a vital relationship with the Holy Spirit, because He is the one who reveals Christ. Without immersing ourselves in the Holy Scriptures. And without intentionally doing Christian community in the good and bad times. Transformation will be slowed or stalled, even if you're saved. And yet the implication needs to be seen. It needs to be expressed. It must be pointed out again and again. Honoring God at all times through an ever-transforming life, that is the will of God. There is no middle ground for us between the old us and the new us. God and Satan, sin and holiness. Paul then stops at this moment and begins to outline for us as a community what this transformation and this perpetual loving act of sacrifice to God looks like in us personally in our church among each other, in our neighborhoods, and then to the world. He says these words in verse 3, listen carefully. For by the grace given to me, I now say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. The language here, it's alive. It's very powerful. It's literal. As one wrote, I say to everyone, don't superthink yourself. Don't get hyper about yourself. You know what you are by the measure of faith that God has given you. Now, this has two meanings, by the way. The first is we should be sober or humble because of how we all receive peace with God. There's a level foot at the cross, right? We are to see ourselves as God sees us and no one else, including ourselves. And this is best informed by our experience at salvation. Another preach, don't forget what Romans has taught us. All believers are chosen by the sovereign will of God, not our choice. The choice is a result of unmerited favor. And this grace is received through faith in Jesus Christ. It's grace alone. It's, it's faith alone. It's in Jesus alone. How could we ever think, listen, that we are better than another Christian because of our money, because of our clothing, 
because of our spiritual gifts or our experience or our natural or acquired skills or our maturity or our age or our race or our education. You fill in the blank. If salvation is truly a 100% God act, then humility is the only place we can go because salvation has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. But there's another meaning too. Paul is about to talk about spiritual gifts for the church. It's where we get our word charisma from. Charismatic. Surprise everyone. Every Christian's a charismatic. Boo. Anyone who has a spiritual gift, and each of us do have at least one, we're filled with the Spirit of Christ. And we should see ourselves, listen carefully, through what gifts have been given us and their differing strength and authority. Don't spend your life, please hear this, trying to be something that God did not make you to be. Do not spend your life wanting other gifts that the Holy Spirit, who is sovereign, has chosen not to give you. Do not spend your life trying to do ministry in an area that you're not gifted in. Or here's the reverse. Do not expect others to be or become something that God has not gifted them to be. You will always, as a Christian, end up angry, bitter, and disappointed because your views about that person aren't heaven views at all. They're yours. Paul comes and says to our community, if we're really going to understand being a living sacrifice and then get into love, please understand there has to be a level playing field called humility, and there also has to be an agreement amongst us that we are not going to spend our life trying to be something we'll never be. Each of us, he says, verse 4, has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function. So in Jesus, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are the actual body of Jesus Christ on earth. None of us are the head, but we do form his community. We are bound together by the Spirit of Christ, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. The power of God, the reign and rule of God, is most strongly expressed when we know we're bound together by Jesus, for Jesus, and underneath Jesus. Yet out of this unity with Jesus, there is diversity because the Spirit of God has given the community at least 21 spiritual gifts. The expectation here is this. Not independence, not dependence, but interdependence. Just a side note before we keep going. Isn't this why we pray for other churches in this church every single week? Isn't this the reason why we try very hard to have unity with churches we don't even get along with sometimes? Is this not why we remind ourselves that we're not the only church or the best church or the most theologically informed church or the most cool? No, no. We are only one little part of God's vast kingdom. And that's it. It was Clement of Rome who was writing just after the death of St. John in around 150 AD that wrote these words. Think about it. Why do we divide and tear to pieces the members of Jesus and raise up strife against our own body? Why have we reached such a height of madness as to forget that we actually are members of one another? Amen? Very good. Very helpful. He says in verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
If a person's gift is prophesying, let them use it in proportion to their faith. If it's serving, let them serve. If it's teaching, let them teach. If it's encouraging, let them encourage. If it's giving to the needs of others, let them do it generously. If it's leadership, let them govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. The word cheerfully is hilariously, by the way. Prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, gifting, giving, leadership, mercy. This is not an exhaustive list, but it shows us something. Paul's, Paul's point here is this. One put it, put it this way. When the Spirit of God is actually free to work in a church, there is diversity. Each of us needs one another. The church is not a place at all for lone rangers. If your life, listen seems to be stuck spiritually. Even though you read your Bible and you pray all the time, it's probably because you're neglecting getting together with other Christians and you're depriving yourself of the exchange necessary for spiritual growth. Without community, you will never use spiritual gifts. Without spiritual gifts, you will never do the will of God. Without the will of God, you will not have joy. Paul now turns his gaze as he's working this out to the essence of our movement, to love, relationships, holiness, actually the law of Christ. Paul begins to actually, in another way, work out the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 9 to us as Christians, love, he says, must be sincere. Let it be genuine, without hypocrisy. Love is agape love here, divine love. The underlying idea of a hypocrite comes from the Greek stage, when a person would play multiple parts, having multiple masks, but they're never themselves. As one said, Christians can avoid love that is mere play-acting if they put into practice what Paul is about to say below. Another said, if hypocrisy creeps into you, love will cease to be love and you will become something grotesque. And you'll know it. You're manipulative, you're all about competition, and you're all about pretense. Paul says not only must a church have genuine love and gifts, but real love is actually discerning. Real love has boundaries. It moves beyond sort of just behavior or feeling to truth. It says in verse 9, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love is not soft on evil, everyone, even as Canadians. We're called to abhor evil. We are called to run from evil, shrink back. We are called to detest what God says are wrong action or behavior. Notice, not people. Really, Christian love moves us towards, here's the word, violent hatred of evil, not people, and a tenacious attachment to what's from above. Why? Because what is from above is not just a better standard or a thing to be nice. It's the very DNA of God himself. Paul says, love needs to be sincere. Hate what is evil. And then he says these words, be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love. Honor others above yourself. Count yourself, count others better than yourself. Do multiple acts of love. The idea here is sort of family love and friendship love. You take pleasure, he says, when you see others in the family being gifted or doing better. It actually excites you because you understand it's for God. He says, never be lacking in zeal, verse 11, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The idea here is important to understand this whole passage. It comes from the idea of a boiling pot or a really hot fire. I prefer the amplified version here where it says, be aglow and burning with the Holy Spirit, serving the Lord. Now this is key for all of Romans 12. Catch this today, please. If we're going to hate evil for real, 
If we're going to love each other in the good and bad times, in the tough times, for real, if we're going to use our gifts, and if we're going to be okay with how God has made some and not us, if we're going to all be able to serve without competition, if we're going to love a world that does not share our faith, if we are going to have a real living sacrifice mentality, and it's going to be done in a world that is resistant, the only way this is going to happen is for a resident but otherworldly power in us named the Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit, no Romans 12. Is that basic enough? Hear this. Everything that Paul has said is so easily said, very well written, and almost impossible to do. Would anyone agree? Very difficult. He says, be aglow with the Spirit of God. Then he says, be joyful in hope, uh, uh, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. He says, look, when you have the Spirit of God, make the deliberate, notice this, decision, hope, patience, faithfulness. It's not just a God thing that happens out there. It's a decision we make to do. He says in verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice, he says, hospitality. Love and care will cost all of us time and money and food. Another simply said, our care for the church, brothers and sisters in Jesus, should reach right down into our wallets and purses and cost us, not just cost us what's left over, I would add, cost us some of our lifestyle. Paul says practice hospitality. It's a thing that's been lost in a lot of our churches today. In a culture back then where there were really no restaurants or motels, Christians depended on each other when they were traveling, especially those who were traveling evangelists or preachers. But I I read something that caught my mind this week. Many Christians still today lose everything when they embrace Jesus. They become, ready, disinherited. So hospitality is more than just going to Swiss Chalet and saying, thanks for being at C4 today. It's deeper. Hospitality for many was either that or destitution. And it matters today for us. The call is to share our presence not only with other Christians, but the implication is to share our presence to anyone who's journeying beside us, which means our neighbors. Paul then ends this grand call to love, not with the church and not with gifts and not even with ourselves, but he actually moves us now to those outside of the community, those who are not Christians. And he says these words, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I read a summary this week that brought new life to me when I read this very familiar passage. In the Arab tradition, if you go to Arab countries, and it's done in a different level of sincerity, there's something that they do that I think encompasses this. They touch their head, they touch their mouth, and they touch their heart. To greet each other. I think of you often and fondly. I always speak of you well. And my heart, it beats for you sincerely. Now this is easily done, right? But the essence of our movement is this. For those that do not like us, I think of you often. I always speak of you right. And my heart, It beats for you. It's one thing to say, don't curse. It's another thing to pray for our enemy's blessings. But Paul says, this is the heartbeat of our movement. 
He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. There's an old Swedish proverb that goes, a shared joy is a double joy, and a shared sorrow is half a sorrow. It's about presence again. It's about being there in life. As God never leaves us, so we in the body of Christ must never leave each other, and more so for a world that does not truly know community, for they have never met the one who is community within himself, who has included us within the eternal divine romance called the Trinity. This is the heart of why we are and will continue to push this church bit by bit, whether we do it right all the time, to help us be with people who are not like us. We, as middle-class evangelicals, need to learn hospitality and be with those that are not like us. It is the mandate of Scripture. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Vanity is the death of our witness. It exalts the temporal, diminishes the eternal, and says to others simply this, I know you're made in the image of the one that called me and predestined me and loved me when I didn't love him. I know that. But I just want you to know that I don't care. And I'm actually just better than you. And you better deal with that. He says that can never be the body language or the heart attitude of us. We are called to have a caring, vulnerable heart for the world. Choose yourself. Allow yourself to be carried away by people of low rank. Economically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, age, stage, the list goes on. As one wrote, a Christian who associates with people of the same intelligence or academic or professional interests or fill in the blank is not living up to what Scripture not only suggests, mandates. One of the best stories uh, I came across this week on this comes from a life of a man named Charles Hughes who I'd never heard of. Uh, Charles Hughes was appointed to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Though we're not Americans, most of us here, I think we'd all agree that's a pretty significant position, right? He was a, a devout Christian. His father had been a Baptist minister, and when he was transferred to Washington to take the highest post in his land in the law, he took his letter of transfer. That's what we used to do in the olden days. And he came to the local Baptist church, and they welcomed him. It was the custom of that Baptist church to have all new members stand sort of like us, but more come forward and be introduced to the congregation. On that particular day, and this is a long while ago now, the first, was to, the first to be called was a Chinese laundryman named Ah Sing. He had just moved to Washington from San Francisco and kept a small laundry near the church. He stood at the far side of the pulpit. Others were called, and they took the position at the other side of the pulpit, the extreme opposite side, interestingly. When a dozen people had finally gathered, the Chinese laundryman was alone. Suddenly, now the chief justice, they all knew he was there. I mean, can you imagine? He was there. Oh my goodness, guess who's coming to our church? Uh Uh-huh, the chief justice, that's what, you know, right? They call him and Mr. Hughes stands up. Yes, he's a man of great intellect and power and might. He is going to determine for hundreds of years law. And he stands up and they welcome him and he walks right over beside the laundryman and looks at all of them. This man understood the essence of our movement. See, the truth is ordinary people, important people, outcasts, those categories don't matter to us as Christians. Because we all got met by a God who came for us. 
Money and power or the lack of it should never and can never divide a church simply because that's not what our kingdom's about at the end of the day. And then if that's not enough, Paul goes even further and gives all of us sitting here or listening today an explicit command of how to love a hostile world. He knows our reflex is to hit back, to gossip, to bite, to slander, but here he weaves a theme of non-retaliation. And he says these words, and by the way, this is personally directed, church-directed, not country-directed, just as a side note. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with, what does it say? Good. How hard these words are. How unnatural for all of us, the reverse of the world's thinking. And yet this is how we as Christians are called to navigate an unfair and unjust world. Undeserved mercy has been given to us again and again, Romans 1 through 11. And so it must be given time and time again to undeserving others also. As one pen, though redeemed citizens of heaven, we believers will love in a world that is soaked in evil. We must battle constantly against the tendency to conform our behavior to this world. God calls us to be active in using the grace of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to win victories over evil in a world that has nothing to do with those two things. And then Paul goes silent. Reading a passage like this, it's a favorite of many of yours, I know. It's easily read, isn't it? I was reviewing my life this week and realizing that it's very hard to come up and preach this to you because I'm so, so far from this passage. I mean, this is the essence of us, right? On Wednesday night when we were praying for God, begging God to move in this church in new and dramatic ways, I said to those who were gathered, Romans 12 would be a good thing to pray for our church. It's probably what we're all longing for in our hearts and haven't been able to pen. I'll just give you some thoughts as one among you who is challenged by this. First thing I want to say to you and my fellow friends is this. You have to ask for the Holy Spirit. I know that some of you are getting tired of me saying this, but you need to have a vital relationship with the Holy Spirit in a way many of you don't. Do you honestly think that you can love God without him? Do you, do you really think that we're going to be able to love each other or, or others without his ability? Do any of us honestly think that we can become more like Jesus without the same power that indwelled Christ? One wrote, as the moon reflects the light of the sun, yet has no light of its own, we will shine with God's radiance as we live in proximity to his sun. How do you do that? Well, only by the one who is the Spirit of Christ. We have to call upon the Holy Spirit every single day to give us an unnatural ability to personally follow out Romans 12. If this does not happen, this church, like any church, large or small, complicated or uncomplicated, will always divide itself and consume itself with everything except Jesus when this is not our focus. 
we need to decide to follow. Whether you've been a Christian for a day, a month, a year, or decades, and it's usually the decades people that struggle with this the most, there is a decision to be made where we, in a daily way, say, my life isn't my own. I am actually owned by someone else. I am a living sacrifice. I willingly, I willingly place myself back towards you. Without the Spirit, you'll never even get to do that. The challenge to myself and to us is ask for the Holy Spirit to give us unnatural abilities because this passage makes no logical sense. Then come to the position where we out loud, not just in our minds, out loud say, I choose to be a living sacrifice. Everything I am is yours. A few last questions, because there's a thousand things we could think of under this passage. There's a pastor named Kent Hughes, who I still think is just outside of Chicago, who wrote a bunch of questions that I'm just going to publicly steal, but I referenced him, so it's okay. He says, um, how are we thinking about ourselves? After we've just read Romans 12. Are we thinking too highly of ourselves? Are we comparing ourselves with others to look good or to tear ourselves down? If we're doing that at all, he says, we need to look to Jesus quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he reminds us. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No one else's. Another question he asks for us. How are we thinking about other Christians? Is the body a reality to us, he asks. It's unity. It's diversity. It's mutuality. Let me ask you a question very directly today. Are you doing anything in this church that is threatening our unity? Are you doing anything in this church, personally or corporately, that is threatening the fabric of this church? Are you perpetuating rumors? Are you gossiping? Are you slandering? Are you committing sin that is going to bring devastation to this church? Are you doing anything in public or secret that is dividing this church? Jesus comes today and says, stop it. My unity matters. Are any of you involved in fighting diversity in this church? Are you caught up in clothing or are you judging people with different spiritual gifts and you have not taken the time to understand how people with that gift function? If so, stop it. Take time. What about mutuality? Are you one of those people that have just decided that you're going to sit in the back and do nothing and come to church and leave and not be involved because it's too complicated, too difficult, too, and you list it all? Well, by you choosing not to serve and doing community, you are depriving us of you. And Scripture says that if you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts that we need. We need you. You don't have the right to sit back and do nothing. God didn't save you. To sit. He saved you to do community, even if it's difficult. He asks another question Do I love others, especially those in the church, without hypocrisy? If the answer is even uncertain, we need to go to God with prayer because the Holy Spirit is the one that's poured love in our hearts and He can change our hearts. Finally, how are we thinking about our gifts? He says, Do you know them? Are you using them? If not, why not? We're going to teach a course, I think, in April, and if you honestly don't know your spiritual gifts, take it. If you've been a Christian for 30 years and you don't know them, just you're probably using them, but stop and come. Like, we need everyone in this church to know their gifts and to use them and to grow in them and be mutually submissive. Paul comes to us and says, in view of everything that God has done for us, we need to offer ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. 
We do not need to waste our life trying to be something we were never called to be. We need rest. We need satisfaction that only comes from heaven. We are called to love each other even when it's difficult. We are called to love a world that will never love us. And we are called to mandate, follow through these mandates. And we are called to ask for the Spirit of God to make us like this. Paul comes to us and says, God has done everything for us. We have to do everything for him. But he has not left us alone. Last thought and then I'm done. This is not, by the way, an admin, just a, a rebuke because it's not. As we were saying in my small group last night, and a different topic, but it's this same theme. If this would happen in John Thompson's life more, and all of our lives more, this would bring rest to this church. This would bring freedom to our church. This would bring hope. God commands these things because out of these things, death is removed and life comes. So let's pray about these things and see what God does. Lord, we come to you and um, it's an interesting thing, like the sharing of the birth of uh, the coming birth of a child in my family and the applause and the joy is a very powerful image of what many of us went through when we got saved. But then there's a the reality of the kid later. <laughs> and that's just like our family. And I, I'm just saying to you, Lord, I, you've, you've heard my cry and my burden this week. Lord, to do this, we need help. And so as a church, we pray for the Holy Spirit. We pray, and again, if you can do this, do this in your heart. I, again, willingly become a living sacrifice for you. We ask for you to teach us how to love, practice hospitality, forgive, not curse. God, forgive any of us who are violating unity or diversity or our need to be with each other. God, um, I pray very specifically because it's a big place with a lot of people, that you would just really speak into a lot of us, and if we're going sideways, speak, Lord, speak, and save us from ourselves. Last prayer, genuinely, is I pray, Lord, that this church would be very, very, very loving, and that the world more and more in Durham would go, they're real. And I just ask you to do this in my life, and the life of my fellow believers here. I ask this in the name of Jesus uh, who called us when we didn't deserve it. Uh, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca. 